and welcome to Copy That, a show about life on the creative side of things. I am super excited about today's guest. It's Scott Belsky. You might know him as an entrepreneur and an author, uh, but he's also the co-creator of uh, the online platform Behance, and uh, Behance was acquired by Adobe in 2012. Um, Scott was included in Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business back in 2010. He's got a new book out. It's called The Messy Middle, and it's a real gem. Um, I I really can't encourage you to get it more. We're going to talk about it today, which is super fun. It's a front-to-back journey along the road of Behance. It's basically from startup to acquisition, and it's really interesting. And there's a lot of lessons for us to learn, both creatively, communication-wise. Also, how do we present products and put them out there uh, to market. It's really fun. So I'd encourage you to check that out. But first, let's talk to Scott. Well, my guest today is Scott Belsky. Scott, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Jumping right in, your book, The Messy Middle, it's um, a it's it's much thicker than I thought it was going to be. I think it's, uh, which is, I think is excellent. I think a lot of modern day Business books tend to have like two main ideas, and then they just kind of circle the plane around that uh, for about 240 pages. I really dig that this is a textbook. This is something we can refer back to. What made you decide to do it that way? Well, I mean, this book really uh, started just to go back as a uh, as a project inspired by a lot of frustration with how much we focus on the starts and finishes of everything and ignore the volatility in between all of the great stories that we hear of people starting something and having a glorious or, or difficult finish for that matter. And so I just started to write down a lot of the insights, observations, lessons learned from whether it was boardrooms or late night calls with entrepreneurs or um, experiences of my own leading and building teams over the years. And I had about 800 or so of these and I realized that there was some theme among them uh, and some and some sort of organizational structure, and uh, and then kind of landed with uh, ultimately about 120 or so of them made the cut, and so that was what was that's the DNA of this book, which is a little bit different from the traditional business book in the sense that I wasn't trying to, you know, make one central point and with you know 30 different stories, um, but I went with it anyways. The publisher at first was like, really, you know, this is your uh, this is your approach, but. Uh, but I was like, listen, I actually don't think that my audience has the tolerance or time for a very long business book about a particular point. I think that my I was writing this for a group of people that I felt needed prompts for different parts of the journey when they were in extreme volatility. You know, whether it's starting a nonprofit, starting a product, a, a new a new company, or building a product or transforming an organization. Uh, that's really what the the idea was. Anyone that has started anything as an entrepreneur, or a new startup business, or even even a, a big idea or creative project, we're very familiar with the the midway doldrums. But interesting that you start the process with the idea of endure. That it's, I, I I think it's very no no holds barred to say this is gonna be difficult, um, which I think is great. But why start there? Well, um, you know, I, I think that a, a big part of uh, managing any volatile creative journey or entrepreneurial journey is um, is committing to some degree of suffering. You know, I'm not talking about long-term hours and whatever else. Like, suffering means something different to everyone else. But what it means for everyone is pushing yourself beyond the boundaries of what is your comfort zone. You know, challenging your conventional wisdom. Uh, 
allowing you to recognize that every skill you have is really not enough to do something beyond your you know ordinary means, beyond you know what you've done before, and uh, and a lot of that is about endurance. I mean, it, it's one thing to have a a day job where you get a salary every two weeks and a bonus at the end of the year and you're reviewed and you've got a boss and everything else. But when you start to step out of the confines of that, um, which is required for any extraordinary uh, ambition, you know, then, then the, the, that whole playbook is thrown out. And, uh, and, and I think a big part of it is just the tactics for enduring that volatility and what, it, what is it like to work in, in complete uncertainty, anonymity, ambiguity, and self-doubt. Uh, and that's what I wanted to kind of work, walk people through and share some of the kind of hacks that you can use to keep yourself and your team engaged during such scenarios. In the book, you cover a lot of different hacks uh, that that would help out. One of them specifically is about adding energy. And why add energy? Why is that so crucial? Well, I think, you know, when I talk about the, the notion of adding energy, um, one of the things that I, I come back to is these very difficult conversations that every team has to have when something is not working, when something needs to be figured out. Those types of discussions where there is no decision yet made because it's just too complicated and people will leave the, the room potentially feeling totally overwhelmed and wondering, is this ever going to work? Are we totally screwed? And, uh, and it's important as a leader to make sure that you end such conversations by leaving people with energy as opposed to feeling depleted. And that really is the most important uh, thing to do. Um, otherwise, you know, people are lethargic and you start to drain the team of the initiative and of the energy that's required to, to work towards a solution. Reading this book, I just felt super inspired through the whole thing. I've never worked for a startup, but I have had my own business and I work for myself now. So it 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 is similar. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just well, just I mean, a wild you know, thing. You know, it's it's uh, not so dissimilar from you know, anything that you're doing on your own. I mean, that's, you know, there's it's it's a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. I felt like it was a great pat on the back, a great encouragement. One of the things you talk about is this idea of being collaborative that it's more important to be collaborative than correct, which um, kind of flies in the face of a lot of people when they start, you know, startups, it's this alpha thing and it's such a crucial thing. And even in my own life, I don't think I would have paid attention much to that in my 20s and maybe even my early 30s. I understand a little more now, but why is that so important? Well, when you're thinking about the um, the a long-term journey of being successful as a team or a partnership, you know, whether it's a, a relationship or in a business or, you know, whatever the situation is, you ultimately need to be calibrated with truth, right? I mean, at the end of the day, what improves your team's judgment and what allows you to learn from what goes wrong is what makes you good over the long term. And if you try to uh, obscure those facts or those moments of truth, if you try to gloss over because you don't want to admit that you were wrong. Um, you're what ultimately what you're doing is you're 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 using you're you're introducing bad data, you know, for lack of a better term. You are you are you are cloud calibrating the compass incorrectly. And so of course that's going to come back and, and and mess you up. You know, you've got to uh, be very honest and call out what's not working and constantly recalibrate the team to be more more precise and more correct over time. And uh, and that oftentimes requires leaders to say, I was wrong, you know, and that didn't work out and here's why, or let's dissect that. 
And I just don't think that happens enough. I think that we typically scoot over anything that doesn't work of our own doing. And you know, which is why I like to say that we're not our best selves at the lows or the highs of the volatility of a, of a creative journey, right? At the lows, we are not our best selves because we are making decisions out of fear. We're making decisions out of insecurity and our judgment is tainted. And we're not our best selves at the highs because we're, we're making decisions while falsely attributing the things that we did to the things that worked and, uh, and being tainted by our egos. And so if you can at least start to recognize that in the volatility, we're likely not our best selves at the lows or the highs, you know, then we can start to ground ourselves in saying in either situation, you know, how are we learning? How are, how are we course correcting for the team in real time? Another one of the pieces that you talk about in terms of a fuel is this idea of curiosity and mystery. Everybody in my world, I, and I feel like so many people have seen that J.J. Uh, Abrams talk about the mystery box as a great way for storytelling. Uh, but I love the way you're using it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think um, I think the you know that that applies to. I think I brought it up in the book in the in the context of product and um, you know and. If, correct me if I'm mistaken, but I think you're talking about sort of the, you know, mystery makes history, and, and yes, exactly, yeah, you know, and how how kind of there is something about upside surprise in any customer experience that um, really has a disproportionate impression on brand and customer happiness, um, and so you have to kind of identify, you know, what are the what are the things are going to polish beyond expectation. Uh, to delight a customer? What are the things that you are going to, you know, not lead with, but allow people to discover on their own? Um, and uh, and that, I, I think some of the best products in the world do that. Uh, there's a, you can only, you, you only merchandise things that will get people through the top of the funnel of an experience. In the book, I talk about the first mile of the customer's experience and how it can't be the last mile of your team's experience building the product or service. Um, and a lot of, and that, that 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 relates to this notion of preserving some things to be discovered and some mysteries, uh, uh, or, or you know unexpected experiences that um, that that have disproportionate impact. Well, I thought that was a great lesson, an easy lesson even for engagement of just using that curiosity as a fuel. I think I think it's great. Um, Specifically with the products, like, and how how does that work for features? Because one of the encouragements you give is is to hold some features back so that they can be discovered, um, so they're not overtly, you know, talked about from a uh, marketing standpoint. And I can imagine that in a marketing meeting, people that that would be a fight of if this is a key feature and this is what we're doing, then I need to be talking about it. Yeah, well, it's you know what I try to do, and and we're getting to some of the product stuff, which I love, as you know, is is uh, I, I'm always asking myself, what is a new customer uh, or new you know person walking to a store or a person reading a book or watching a movie or whatever? Like, what what do you need to introduce in the first call it 15 seconds, 15 minutes, whatever the whatever the equivalent is for these different mediums that helps them know why they're there, you know, what to expect and what to do next. And because um, that's enough to keep people engaged, and that's actually all you should try to strive for in that initial experience uh, and, and or that first mile experience for your customer in a product. And then, then you have to start to under, then you have to start asking, okay, and what does the customer discover then after they get through that initial experience that keeps them engaged and that delivers the long-term promise and value of the product or experience? 
And it's those things um, that are both expected and unexpected. And I think that's where kind of the, the, the surprises are, are layered in with a great product experience. That's great. That's great. Now, when we talk about truthfulness and data, um, you talk a lot about how when we get data back, um, it's important that we're using like a radical truthfulness for it. And how do you how do you differentiate data systems so that your team isn't tempted to game the system or just have your data leading you down a road that maybe it isn't? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that anyone can make any story from data. You can make it into the story you want, um, which is why whatever story we are telling ourselves, we should push back on and, and keep questioning until we kind of get down to the bone. And so my tactic is oftentimes a team member will come and say, oh, my gosh, you know, we just broke this stat. Um, isn't that amazing? And it's like, well, uh, how does that stat relate to another stat like uh, retention or you know things that we actually really use to measure customer success and it's like well you know there isn't a correlation it's like okay well then why are we celebrating it um, or uh, you know and just keep keep or 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 keep asking you know when we celebrate a stat and then it's like well is that an all-time high or is that just growth recent and if, if it's just recent growth like why did we go down before we went up again uh, and just keep drilling down not to say that we can't celebrate progress, like acknowledge progress when it's the result of something we've done. That's another important point is, you know, at, a, at an e-commerce company, you can't celebrate traffic going up when it's the holidays because it's the holidays. And so you can't celebrate fake wins because then what you do is you incentivize the team to do things that aren't correlated with overall long-term success. So you have to always be asking yourself as the leader, like the thing that I am celebrating, the thing that I am acknowledging as a success, is it, the, is it the result of efforts that I want to see more of, or is it the result of forces beyond our control? And if the latter, then don't celebrate it because you're gonna send a very negative message to the team. And, uh, and also, whenever you're hearing data, you have to constantly, you have to barrage it with questions to get down to the true, the true um, insight, you know, and, and, and make sure you you remove any of the distractions or the edges that are distracting you from what is actually the true story. One of the things that goes along with honesty is acknowledging a blind spot, either in our leadership or our company culture. How is it how do we set up our company culture so that that we are embracing that that blind spot and we can uh, move forward effectively? Well, what, what I try to do in a team environment is find the areas that I keep missing and then find people that are better at that. And, you know, this is where you have to recognize that you can't cover all the surface area of any product or service or business or, you know, any sort of production, right? And, and you, you need to have people that round yourself off that have the opposite tendencies, that have the opposite obsessions, that have attention to detail in areas that you don't. And you know, I've learned over the course of my life, for example, that when it comes to processes, like I'm a good breaker of process. I like to question process. Um, I sometimes also know when to throw a process at a problem to solve it. But when it comes to adhering to a process over a long period of time, just not my strength. Like I need other people. It doesn't come naturally to me. I'm not a process-oriented leader. And so I have learned to you know, bring people onto my team, have a chief of staff, have folks that are very process oriented, that have the opposite tendency as I do, 
And I've learned also to when to empower those folks to take control over a situation uh, versus when to say, hey, it's, it's my turn because this is an area where we're going to have to beat the process down in order to succeed as opposed to follow it. And I think you just have to kind of learn over the course of your career what those blind spots are and then adjust accordingly. And one of the other things going along with leadership is this idea of ambiguity, um, hunting it down and how to root it out. How do you how do you do that with your teams? Well, um, ambiguity, we we're talking about, you know, the notion of energy, like ambiguity sucks energy away. And um, and it is very hard to be decisive in an ambiguous situation. And so I like to try to compartmentalize ambiguity and then focus on the areas that are more clear and gradually kind of you know, edge away uh, at ambiguity because it's the result of um, you know, mis- misalignment, right? And, and uh, it's very hard to get people to be decisive, to get the best work out of yourself and your team when you are not aligned. And, uh, and, and I'm always fighting the, fighting the misalignments you know, in any sort of situation. And I think you do that by, um, by articulating vision. Also, like design is a great trick, you know, showing rather than telling. Like, what is our product going to look like? What is the actual sell page going to look like? What does people see first? What is the value proposition? What's the actual copy? If we can start to really internalize at the beginning of a project what people will ultimately go through and see and how we're going to merchandise and explain it and what the, what the, the story is, you know, that's a great way of getting people aligned. Then they make better decisions. And if there are engineers and designers and other people involved, like everyone's starting to be grounded with the same objectives. That's huge. I think that... Uh, the more tactile you can make something, the more, I mean, that's why I say sort of design, but I guess you can use my term of design to mean it, different things for different mediums and industries. But it's, uh, uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes made in any sort of meeting or company or organization is having these intellectual discussions around a table about the solution to something as opposed to seeing, feeling, and kind of trying to live the friction of the customer, live the thing that you're trying to solve. Um, another, the, other, the other big thing I see most entrepreneurs struggle with is they make something out of their passion for uh, a solution as opposed to seeking relentless empathy for the people with the people suffering the problem. You know, I, I don't see many products built out of passion. I see a lot of great products built out of empathy. Exactly. And now with the book finished, what do you have next on the horizon? Well, you know, I actually force myself when, um, you know, when a book comes out or when a new project, you know, just to spend enough time getting the message out and trying to refine it and, and uh, as opposed to just jumping to the next thing. And you know, I feel like half of a creative project is spreading it. And we, so I, I'm trying to actually force myself to not focus on what's next from a project perspective. I mean, right now, you know, Adobe, I'm responsible for the, the future of a lot of important creative products across video and imaging and design and always thinking about, like, what are these products going to be like in new mediums, like augmented reality and voice. And all, there's, you know, a lot of exciting stuff happening in the world of creativity these days. And then and then with the book, you're trying to uh, trying to get the word out and, and meet more people and understand what the application of the book is in other industries. Well, the book is called The Messy Middle. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. 
And that's our show. Big thanks to Scott Belsky for being on the show. And thank you for listening. I'll have links to all that Scott does in our show notes, which you can find at danportnoy.com. If you have any questions that are long form, you can email me, dan at portnoymediagroup.com, or hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at danportnoy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd leave a review about the show, that would be super incredible. It really would. Um, That's our show. Thank you for listening. On behalf of the cast of thousands, my name's Dan Portnoy. Have a great one and be safe.